Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. As a scripture reading this morning, I'm going to be reading our passages. So Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 12. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no, no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. But all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Around 200 years ago, uh, the silk industry in Europe was failing. And, and to try to help this out, uh, an American, an amateur entomologist, uh, decided that he would use caterpillars in, in America to help this out. And he imported a caterpillar that might sound familiar to you. He imported the gypsy moth. And of course, as it would go, as he was studying them and he had them on the windowsill, a wind came and blew them into the countryside. And well, you know the rest, don't you? When me and my family were camping in the pinery in early June, uh, we'd go on our nature walks, and the caterpillars had absolutely infested the park. Every tree, every bush we went, you could see the, these caterpillars covering to the point you couldn't even count them. And of course, you get back to the campsite and, and you're sweeping off your, your mat, and when you sit down at the campfire to shake your chair out, and you, we even found them in the toaster. It was so bad that at night, as they're, they're munching in the trees and their droppings would fall, it sounded like a gentle rain on our camper and our truck. Life is often a full-time job trying to keep things clean from contamination or infestation, isn't it? Whether it's the mice in our attic or the earwigs that came scurrying out of our barbecues this summer. And in our passage this morning, the early church also has a full-time job fighting off 
what would contaminate the purity of the gospel. And we're going to find a plague which will try to infuse itself into the church, which still works to contaminate to this day. And it might not be what you expect. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning that as we open your word, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the message that you have us for this morning. So we lift our time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. In Acts 14, just before our passage, Paul and Barnabas are on a missionary journey and have traveled to many cities such as Derby and Lystra and Iconium, preaching, installing elders, and strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And after their journey takes them through several more cities, they sail to Antioch. Now verse 27 of chapter 4 says, And when they arrived, they gathered the church together, and they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. But then Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Circumcised to be saved? How did they come to that conclusion? Gentiles are being saved and added in great number to the church, which represents a major shift from the norm since God made Abraham into a nation. God's chosen people, the Jews, have been set apart at this time, and to mark them as separate for the Lord, they're given very specific laws, customs, holidays, dress code, food, and lifestyle. Now imagine all that you know and practice has also become the bedrock for your identity has been flipped on its head under a whole new covenant. Some things are, are hard to let go. It took a vision to replay it from the Lord three times to convince the Apostle Peter himself that he could even meet with the Gentiles. When Peter meets with Cornelius and his family, uh, he explains very carefully, you yourselves know how unlawful it is, the present tense, for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from any other nation. It's not hard to imagine the consternation, even among the believing Jews. So just like that, our laws and traditions and culture, they're meaningless. What are we to make of this? This is the way we've always done it. Okay, so some Gentiles are being saved. Perhaps this is a one-off. This whole thing could just be an anomaly. Maybe it's just going to kind of go away on its own. But the testimonies just keep piling in, from Peter and Cornelius to Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. That change has come is getting harder to deny. Personally, I can relate. I don't much care for change. And when you live a certain way long enough, the way we've always done it can become a law unto itself. Well-worn paths of religiosity are relied on as truth, even if no one's really sure why. When I was in my young 20s, we had a baptism service here at People's Church, which nearly caused quite a scandal. Everything was as you'd expect. We had the candidates here dressed in white. They came up and did their testimonies. But when they entered into the, the tank, the guy who was supposed to do the dunking, he wasn't even a pastor. Oh my goodness, I mean, what an awkward, embarrassing mistake. 
Uh, I guess it, it could have happened to anybody. Uh, but then the service just kept going. What, what a blunder. They've got to fix this. Does this even count? I remember half wondering in my mind if perhaps the real baptism hadn't happened with a real pastor perhaps the night before. Because this is the way we've always done it here at People's Church. And it's got to be in the Bible somewhere, right? And now back to verse 1. The way we've always done it, crowd, can't seem to hold back any longer. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And this garners quite a response from Paul and Barnabas in verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. This debate is so crucial that it needs a higher spiritual authority to weigh in and consider the matter. The church is growing like wildfire, and they want to get this right. Verse 3 and 4 describe their joyful journey to Jerusalem. But then verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Oh boy. Holding on to the law of Moses for salvation is pretty entrenched in Jerusalem as well. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. In one sense, careful consideration of theological positions is beneficial. However, this particular debate has serious gravity. Some say that of the seven councils of the early church, this Jerusalem council is the most important one. There is a plague at the doorstep of the church that risks serious infection Yet it's not simply a matter of sin. Sin is deadly for sure, but this is worse. That one could be saved through their own effort and goodness removes the cross of Christ and defiles the gospel. It's a poisonous mindset that could worm its way into the heart of salvation and bring rot the purity of salvation. Although dialogue can be healthy, this debate is a must-win. The arguments are coming on strong from both sides now, and the apostle Peter weighs in. Look to verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart. Stop right there. God who knows the heart. We have to examine this statement before we move on because of the weight it carries. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, contrary to what we may think, has little to do with emotion or warmth or depth of feeling. Emotions are a large part in our relationship with the Lord. However, the deep feelings of love that we often talk or sing about are not the province of the heart, as it may seem, but of the soul. To love the Lord your God with all your heart is in reference to the human will. The human heart must be subjugated, the defiant will put to death. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ within me. Paul is saying, my will has been put to death. 
In Matthew 16, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. To surrender our heart, to submit our human will, is the very foundation of being born again. Yet those insisting on circumcision seem to be under the impression that instead of surrendered, the heart must be subdued by law. At first glance, it seems a little odd to desire the master of the law, doesn't it? Who wants to be ruled by the law? The heart is cunning with no desire to be ruled. So what's really going on here? The appeal of the law and good works is that they give us something concrete to measure up to. It can come with a sense of earning or a sense of arriving. I've got this. I'm not the slave here. I can master the law. Besides, it's only one law, the law of circumcision. How hard could it be? It's not like they're asking us to obey all 613 laws of Moses, are they? It's been said that lawyers are glad when governments put out laws for just about anything. Once it's been put on paper, they have the obstacles made perfectly clear so they can find a way around them, all the while keeping the law. Now you know why the tax code is so thick. Laws are made up, the human heart finds a way around them without breaking a single commandment and remains the master. Add just one law to be saved and the human heart, which wants its way more than words can describe, finds a way around it. Okay, then just two laws. No. No, there, there's no law to be saved. Because of our deceitful human heart, no matter how many laws you add, the human will finds a way to adapt and remains in control. There's a, a short story by uh, Nathan Hawthorne. It takes place uh, hundreds of years ago about a young university student who's looking for a place to live, and there's no spots available except for uh, an old tower that leans above a garden. And so as he moves in and he's looking out the window, he notices an exotic garden full of beautiful plants. But he notices that the caretaker, a professor who's taking care of the plants, is wearing a big heavy mask and gloves and an apron and goggles and has to take extreme care not to have too much contact with the plants. But as he's observing, he notices the professor's beautiful daughter just walks right up. She has no gear on and she can caress the plants and talk to them and seems to have no effect on her whatsoever. Well, as fate would have it, he would fall in love with this young lady, and so desiring to meet, he arranges a time to meet, and so one evening, they manage to sit on a park bench together in the garden. And although there's about a few feet in between them, her toxicity makes him so sick that it nearly kills him. Well, another professor who's feeling bad for the young man uh, helps uh, to come up with an antidote. And so they create an antidote for her poison. But tragically, the poison is so embedded into the young woman, it becomes a part of her, a part of who she is, that when the young man gives her the antidote, the cure kills her. And in the same way, without realizing it, all of our works and goodness and tradition and the way we've always done it, can become so embedded that even the suggestion that we're not right in the eyes of the Lord, 
or the slightest implication that we need the antidote of Christ is wildly offensive. This self-righteousness is how the cross of Jesus is removed. For it's only the sick who need a doctor. Only those who see their fallenness need a savior. But if you're already a good person, God who knows the heart, knows our true condition whether we like it or not, and is able to pierce to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our will. But if the heart is so deceitful, how can we be sure we've surrendered, even if this is what we want? How can I know if my will has been subjected? How can I be sure? This is how we can be sure. Look to verse 8 again. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. To bear witness is an idiom that means to give evidence God, who knows the heart, gave evidence to the Gentiles that their conversion was real. How? By giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to the Jews. This is how God bears witness to the condition of our heart. By the gift of the Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit, like a mighty rushing wind upon the first disciples, was not only a supernatural helper... The miraculous signs and changed hearts that followed were an undeniable seal that God was right in the middle of this. The Gentiles being saved was was not a one-off. It was not a coincidence or a fluke. And now the coming of the Holy Spirit in the Gentiles is irrefutable evidence of God's working. If you're looking for proof that your heart is surrendered, 1 John 4 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And Romans says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life? Our brother preached a couple weeks ago there's some key indicators the Holy Spirit is present. The hymn writer would write that in the light of God's glory and grace, the things of earth grow strangely dim. We have an inner peace and joy even after we watch the news. Some scary things happening. We look forward to Christ coming again, and we don't need to be pushed and prodded to share a testimony as it pours out of us. Another indicator that we have the Spirit of God is that we obtain a supernatural ability to understand the Scripture. Uh, Corinthians says that as our spirit knows our thoughts, so the Spirit of God knows God's thoughts. So that when we have the Spirit of God in us, we understand the thoughts of God and His Word leaps off its page. And we can't get enough. Is this you? Are you born again, once of the flesh and again of the Spirit of God? Unfortunately, this work of God seems to be ignored by the way we've always done it crowd. The Jews have seen the Gentile believers receive the Holy Spirit, yet still insist that they need the law. This is not good. Depending on the law, ignoring the work of the Spirit, and now Peter is going to add one more infestation that comes from the law of Moses. 
And that is using the distinction the law creates for personal power and control. He goes on to say, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us. To use religion for power was as true then as it is now. And with the law of Moses at their back, it comes with some powerful influence. You need to do things our way, or you won't be saved. There can be a tendency, even in Christian circles, toward making distinctions among ourselves that God has not made, upholding laws that God has not upheld for the sake of spiritual dominance. This law that we think we've mastered, we now use to master our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And what should be a good and admirable disposition of follow me as I follow Christ degenerates under the law to simply follow me. I have ideas no one else has had. I'm having conversations no one else is having and problems only my ideas are the solution to. And if you aren't following their personal ambitions, your holiness becomes suspect and your salvation doubted. Condescension and judgment hang around them like an oppressive cloud, adding the cruel master of spirituality after spirituality distinction after distinction, all the while implying that if you just do a little more like we do, one day you might measure up. But measure up to who? Instead of leading others toward the necessity and purity of the gospel through faith alone, they offer their own corrupt and merciless version of salvation through good deeds. At first, this can seem a little confusing. Shouldn't we be doing good things? Is it not a good thing to feed the poor and help your neighbor? Are these not good things, and are they not onto something? Shouldn't we join them in their canned food drives and their outreach luncheons? When the apostles write back to the believers who are troubled by those insisting on the law for salvation, they make it clear that being moral for salvation is unachievable. To be moral in salvation is appropriate and suitable. Yes, when we are alive in Christ, to minister to the widows and orphans is a beautiful thing in the sight of God. And Paul reinforces this in Ephesians, saying, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. To do good works in salvation is beautiful and is designed by God. However, when there are those who are propagating even beautiful ministries from the position of spiritual domination, it's poisonous. And it comes with some obvious tells of anti-authority if you're willing to take the time to discern them. When Peter said that God had made no distinction between us and them, Jew or Greek, he qualifies the statement to remove all doubt. Verse 9 again, And he made no distinction between us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And here's what the Jew and the Greek have in common. Here's where there's no distinction. Not that everyone should be following the law of Moses, but that even the Jews, for all their spiritual culture, were themselves ultimately saved through faith. And when adding to the gospel that which God did not add, 
insisting upon that which God does not insist upon, all the while setting yourself up as the measure, you've actually set yourself up in contention with God. To insist on the law for salvation is not only a moldy infestation into the gospel, it's damning for those who are doing the insisting. Look now to Peter's passionate rebuke in verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why are you putting God to the test? You can't even keep your own standard. Your ancestors couldn't keep it. And so why are you putting God to the test when he is testing you? The command Peter was referring to, do not put the Lord your God to the test, was given as a warning and a reminder of the time when the children of Israel grumbled in the wilderness and were punished with fiery snakes. Deuteronomy lets us in as to why this all happened. In Deuteronomy 8, it says that it was God who led Israel into the wilderness for 40 years. Why? That he might humble them, Deuteronomy says, testing them to know what was in their heart. This event was so iconic that Moses named the place where all this went down, Meribah, meaning rebellion, and Massa, meaning trial or testing. And I want you to turn to Psalm 95. Keep your finger in Acts 15 and turn to Psalm 95. And while you're in Psalm 95, go to the bottom of verse 7. I'm going to read Hebrews 3, which is a parallel passage. And listen to the definitions of Meribah and Massa as they are literally interpreted. Starting at the end of verse 7 of Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as on the day of testing, in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test. And here is the day of testing or trial to know what is in your heart, but you tested me. The verse continues in 9b, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Those teaching circumcision for salvation have also seen God's work through the Holy Spirit, and they're on thin ice. They might not like what they see or hope it's all going away, but God has made his work abundantly clear that salvation is through faith alone. The warning goes on in Psalm 95, verse 10. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, there are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." They shall not enter my rest is a clear shot across the bow. Not only are you angering the Lord your God and putting him to the test, your mission of righteousness through human effort is the road to hell. Peter has one final point and then we'll close. Back to Acts 15.11. But we believe that we... The Jews will be saved through grace 
of the Lord Jesus as they, the Gentiles, will. Saved through grace, it's the opposite of works and good deeds. And Paul again in Ephesians says, For by grace, here it is again, you have been saved through faith. It is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace is not by what I have done. Our undeserved and unmerited favor comes from what God has done. Well, what has God done? I'm glad you asked. God has created the earth and all that is within it. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God has sent his son as a perfect sacrifice. God was pleased to crush him for our sin. God raised him up, conquering sin and death, and God seated Jesus at his right hand. In salvation, God has done it all. And there is no room for what we have done. Or to put it into the positive, there is no need for what we have done. What amazing freedom! There's no need. This is amazing grace. And if you are saved by faith alone, this is a tremendous relief. And this is what I want you to do. If you are saved by faith alone, right through those masks, I want you to take in a deep breath and let out a sigh of relief. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God has done it all in salvation and all that is needed is the faith of a surrendered heart. The groups that were introducing the law of circumcision would need to be silenced. And Paul's passionate appeal, along with Peter's testimony, to what God was doing with the Gentiles had that effect. Look to verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. For those who are insisting on law, the wind has been taken out of their sails. Paul and Barnabas, along with the Apostle James, they then hammer the point home. There will be no law to be saved for the new, new believers. There will be no checklist of good deeds needed to enter the kingdom of heaven. When we left the pinery after our trip, it was such a relief to be home in a clean environment. We didn't have to worry about stepping on the caterpillars or finding them in the toaster and coffee maker. Yet even in the clean environment, as we unpacked our stuff, we still had to go through our gear to make sure we didn't take that infestation home. And the tainted idea that works can save is as true now as it was then. And to be asked to examine our own heart it's not a wildly offensive request. There may be a time, people's church, there may be a time when we look to the law and good works to save us. But let it not be this time. There may be a generation when we use the law to dominate our brothers and sisters in the Lord, demanding that they do more, and are insisting on a standard that we can't even keep ourselves. But let it not be this generation. 
A day may come at people's church where we put God to the test, doing our own will, although we clearly see his spirit at work. But let it not be this day. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in your day of testing. But surrender your heart. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to your word, Lord, may we be so cautious in our own heart. Lord, the attractiveness of trying to earn our salvation of, of works or, or just being good enough, Lord, is so poisonous. So Lord, may we look to you alone for our salvation and find our salvation through faith alone. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.